0: Last time we looked at um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to to 11, or thereabouts, and today I want to read on from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. Quite a big chunk, so uh, get ready. Uh, There are a lot of parts, a lot of moving parts to this uh, this story. Uh, So let's 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12, and Uh, Solomon is uh, dedicating the temple uh, that he has just finished building. And uh, so there's a great assembly gathered uh, to, to mark this event. Verse 12. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned round and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people uh, Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, keep for your servant David my father, what you have promised him saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have what you have walked before me Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God listen listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house the place of which you have said my name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven to your uh, your in heaven your dwelling place when you hear And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when, they, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you, you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if there... Their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates. Whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you... You only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place. And do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that you have built for your name. Then hear uh, hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea. And maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. That they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage. Which you have brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant. And to the plea of your people Israel giving ear to them whenever they, whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine which I have pleaded before the Lord uh, be near to the Lord our God day and night and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings so Solomon held a feast at that time and all Israel with him a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days on the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Amen. Well, as the, as the reading might suggest the length of it um, I want to be quite ambitious this evening and look at this whole section together. I did think originally I might break it up into parts but I think we just need to keep making progress. So we're going to look at 12 to uh, 66 uh, whole 45 verses. And you may remember just how just a quick recap of the how the book of kings has has panned out for us. We have uh, the book deals in the first instance with the successor to David. So David appears in chapter 1, but he's on his deathbed. And uh, Solomon comes to the throne. And, of course, it wasn't a simple matter for Solomon to ascend to the throne. Remember, Adonijah had laid claim to the throne. Um, and that, that needed to be dealt with. And David, in his last act, if you like, uh, ensures that Solomon is, is, is uh, crowned. And uh, when Solomon comes to, comes to the throne, he is also endowed... With wisdom from God, uh, He has granted a request, and He makes that very wise request that He be granted wisdom uh, to rule. And so He is able to. And, and some, some of the chapters, as as the chapters unfold, we see that wisdom in practice. He knows the motivations of people's hearts. He's able to see and discern people's hearts. He's able to organize the whole uh, nation. Uh, he's able to deal with uh, outside nations. Wisely and beneficially uh, to his own people and to those other nations, and uh, you know this this, this king who has been endowed with this marvellous wisdom, if you like, is a is a picture of the man of God appointed to rule over creation. He is he is not the man, but he is like a picture of a, one yet to come. And we've seen already that, of course, he. Is in a sense a type of Christ yet to come, the wise ruler over God's creation and God's kingdom. But in chapter 5 through to, to 9, and we're not quite at the end of that yet, but uh, a large chunk of the section given over to Solomon's reign is is given to uh, the, the temple. And, and that, of course, that tells you that the, the temple is vitally important to. You know we're not really looking at Solomon at all. we're looking at what God has been doing in the people of Israel. And, um, and God what God has done is he has, uh, we've seen how he made a promise to David to Samuel chapter seven, and we've seen how that promise is being fulfilled in and, and that one of his sons is going to, to build a temple, a house for the Lord, and uh, there will be uh, someone to sit on his throne. Uh, forever, and not all of that was fulfilled at that point. But Solomon comes to the throne, and uh, he is uh, God so works the circumstances uh, providentially so that peace comes to Israel, and he is able then uh, to build uh, the temple. So, that idea of God's promise and his providence working together to bring about all that God has planned and purposed is is just being displayed before our eyes here in these chapters. And so we find that uh, here's this time of rest and peace, as it were. Um, Israel is entering into, coming out of a period of wilderness wandering into a time of rest. Um, Many times in in this chapter uh, it's noted that God has given rest to his people, uh, Israel. And uh, so this is, in a sense, a new phase of the history of Israel. And um, so it, it marks an end to the, that wilderness wandering. Well, last time we began to look at chapter 8, we we saw how the temple had been completed and was now being consecrated for the Lord. And uh, we saw that um, what we were interested in was the fact that so the temple was going to be the place where God's presence was going to be. And we saw that in two ways. One was the coming of the Ark of the Covenant. So it had been somewhere else in Jerusalem. We don't know where. uh, In a tent somewhere. And Solomon had brought the Ark of the Covenant and it was placed into the Holy of Holies in this temple. And um, it marks the presence of God amongst his people. But it also marks the covenant of God because it contains the the tablets of Moses. Moses. And it's a reminder that uh, God wants to be amongst his people and his people are to respond to God through his word, to obey his word, pay attention to the commandments and live according to the stipulations that God has set out in the covenant. And that's one, the Ark of the Covenant. The other mark of God's presence is, of course, the, the glory cloud. The glory cloud that comes down into the into the temple and fills the place to such an extent that the priests can no longer minister. They just have to stop everything they're doing and worship God. And this glory cloud is, it tells you something else, and we thought about this before: is that why a cloud? Why? Why does he seem to kind of hide behind a cloud? And it's because we can see that the, the glory of God. And we can see sufficient of the glory of God. But we never see the depths of it. Because that's what God is like. We can never get to the depths of what God is actually like. So we can know God, but we can never know him exhaustively. We will never get to the end of knowing God and discovering more about him. And that's expressed in the fact that God rules in a cloud. It comes in this chapter and other parts of the Old Testament that he is always present in a cloud. And, uh, and so those, those representations of God remind us that there's nothing more important to the people of God than that the presence of God is amongst us. That We desire more than anything else The presence of God. More than a building. You know, it would be nice to have a building, wouldn't it? But more than a building. We desire the presence of God amongst us. Oh, we long for it, don't we? And we should do. But we want God to be in the midst of everything that we're doing as a church. And today, we need no physical temple. We actually don't need a building. A building is just there for shelter. That's all. It really is all. A fancy shelter. And the reason is because we have the living temple of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes as the living temple. And you remember in John chapter 2 Jesus says destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it again. And John tells us helpfully he was speaking of his body. That Jesus himself and his body is the temple of God and so what we need is Jesus Christ we don't need a building to worship in we just need Jesus Christ at the centre, we need to be in Jesus Christ you and I, we need to be in Jesus Christ, we need to be uh, grafted into him and then we're in the temple as it were and we are part of it uh, of that place where God dwells well uh, In the rest of this chapter, we see Solomon leading the people uh, by reminding them of God's promises. Then, in verses 14 to 21, and then we have this very lengthy prayer uh, where Solomon is seeking the blessing of God in uh, verses 22 through to 53, I think. And then the remainder, Solomon is leading the people and consecrating them once again. To the Lord. So, three three main headings this evening, and the first of all is that God God is the fulfiller of all His promises, and this is, a, this is a message that constantly you find in Scripture. So, here's the setting: it's a vast assembly of Israel, the people of God are gathered in Jerusalem, and Solomon turns to them. And blesses them in verse 15. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father. In that verse, you find the whole energy that drives history. You find the whole energy that drives history. he has fulfilled with his hand what he has promised with his mouth he has fulfilled with his hand what he has promised with his mouth that's what god does he promises with his mouth and then he fulfills it and of course david is thinking solomon is thinking primarily about the in the, in the immediately about the the promise made to his father david about the, the building of the temple and he's thinking about that in spite of the fact that there are tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people involved in the building of the temple there's a lot of work gone into it but he's thinking about God doing the fulfilling that God has made it happen and he, he, had, he has no problem whatsoever in attributing all that has been achieved to God that God has fulfilled everything that he promised, fulfilled with his hand what he promised with his mouth. And friends, isn't that something that we, we need to learn as we, we believe with all our, and to believe with all our hearts? That what God promises, he is going to fulfill. That what he says, he's going to do. And we need to keep telling ourselves that repeatedly. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we need to be telling ourselves that, that what God has promised, that's what he's going to do. And even when it seems dreadful, and it seems unlikely, we've got to keep telling ourselves, Scripture tells us time and time again, what God promises, that's what he's going to do. You know, I just wonder if Solomon, it took seven years to build this temple. I just wonder if there were times during that seven-year project where Solomon began to think, well, I'm just, I'm just not sure we're going to get this finished. I mean, anybody who's worked on a project, maybe at work or something like that, I've done it, you know, I've worked on projects before. You know, maybe a private projects, a house project, house building projects or whatever. And you you, you start off with great zeal and enthusiasm and then by halfway through you start thinking, I'm just never going to get this finished. And you begin to lose interest. or You, you, know, what, you lose faith or what, what, how it's going to work out. Maybe Solomon was the same. But how much more? The promises of God. If God is promising something, are we not taken through the fires of testing to believe it, what he says when he promises something? And we need to teach ourselves time and time again what God has promised he's going to do. How much that is that true for the church of Jesus Christ today? Not just for you individually, but for the church as a whole. For the local church and its, its mission. And its worship. And disciples are for the church worldwide. That what God has promised to that church, he is going to do. So last week, I mentioned in the prayer, but uh, last week I was, while I was on holiday... Uh, the Times had a, a survey of uh, Church of England clergy now I think there's a methodol- methodological problem they, they asked 5,000 clergy people uh, to to answer a, uh, a questionnaire and only about a quarter of them replied and it may be that that quarter are particularly interested in replying so it might be a skewed answer however not to go into the get lost in the weeds on that but Um, But basically the Times article came to the conclusion that the majority of the Church of England clergy no longer believe that Britain is a Christian country. Now, whether Britain's a Christian country or not is really neither here nor there. It doesn't matter in one sense. But what was interesting was a couple of facts that were also presented at the time. Uh, One is that 50 years ago, the percentage of the population... Um, attending a church of England on a Sunday was about 3%. So 1972, 73, 3%. Today, it's just slightly above 1% on a Sunday. And so that's one fact. the Relentless decline. I mean, it's just such a single directional graph. (laughs) No bumps, just straight down. But the second fact that came out in that study was that the majority of respondents who are clergy of the Church of England believe that the answer to this relentless decline was for the Church to conduct same sex weddings, to drop its opposition to premarital and to gay sex. And they suggest this believing. That the church will become more and more in line with the population generally. And lo and behold, the church will grow. If only we just follow what the world does, then the church will grow. Um, What I can never understand about these... and I've just heard these arguments over the last 40 years. What I can never understand about this liberal direction that clergy people want to take you in. Isn't there a correlation between wanting to do those things and the decline of the church? The reason people don't come to the church is because the church no longer stands on the gospel and the truth of God. See, those tendencies are actually the cause of decline, not the answer. So why am I telling you all this? Well, it would be easy to despair about the state of the church wouldn't it in the west we all know the promise of Jesus I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and we look at the state of things around us and we have our doubts that that might be true but friends this is the pattern of God's revelation. It is the story of how God does things that he promises with his mouth and he fulfills with his hand. This is what God does. And we need to learn to believe it. We need to tell that to ourselves time and time again until we get it. God fulfills his promises. Secondly, here's the second main thing. Uh, And this is the prayer. So Solomon seeks God's blessing for God's people. And verses 22 to 53. And he does this uh, as he prays in front of the people. And the prayer is quite a long one, so let me just give you a quick outline of the prayer. I hope you're ready for, that, for this. Uh, follow with me. So verses 23, 24. Um, he praises God's, God for his faithfulness in doing, what he's doing with his hand what he's declared with his mouth. So he praises God for his faithfulness. Verses 25 to 26 is a petition to God for his continued steadfastness in the future in keeping what he's promised. Verses 27 to 30 a prayer for the continuing presence of God with his people. And it recognizes that, that God is too great to be contained in a building or even in heaven, in the heaven of heavens. He's too great even for that. But nonetheless, Lord God would you keep your eye on your people would you hear your people would you continue with your people that he'd ever be attentive to his people and hear their needs and watch them and then in the remainder of the prayer 31 to 53 there's a, a sevenfold petition a seven a, fold a request you know, seven things that he, pray, he asks for uh, again let me just quickly run through them um, there's a there's a prayer for when the people sin. Verses 31 32. Verses 33 and 34. A prayer for when they are defeated by the enemy. 35 and 36. A prayer for when there's no rain. Help your people when there's no rain. And 37 to 40, a prayer for when there's famine, pestilence, locusts, plague, sickness, and so on. A number of things. 41 to 43, a prayer for the foreigner. Looks towards Jerusalem and comes to Jerusalem and offers up prayers that you'd listen to the foreigner as he he or she prays. Uh, 45 and 46, a prayer for when they're going into battle. And then finally, 46 to 50, a prayer for when they end up, or if they end up in captivity or sent into exile. What a a strange prayer. The thing to note about all these petitions is that the majority of them are situations which are caused by sin. And and Solomon is praying that uh, God would hear them turning back to God in their sin. And the prayer is really that God would remain faithful even when they've sinned in various ways. Uh, that's that's kind of a miserable prayer, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you're expecting everybody to sin and oh Lord, just keep them keep the plates spinning, keep them going. And you know, I just wonder if if you had the opportunity to stand before a great assembly of people and you wanted to say a meaningful word to them and maybe pray a meaningful prayer to them, what would you do? Uh, you know, I think if you're a politician, you would want to r- rouse the rabble. <laughs> You'd want to give some encouraging words and get them out on the streets, as it were, and uh, arguing the case for their view of what the world. And you would you want to kind of point to all your successes and you would point to all the failures of your political enemies. And uh, so you'd have this a very positive view and try and encourage people in this great rabble-rousing speech. That's how human beings do it. But Solomon doesn't, doesn't do that. He, uh, he seems a bit pessimistic about the future, doesn't he? Not very encouraging. The only exceptions to this tone, um, this negative tone, are... Prayer that the foreigners, if, uh, that foreigners would learn to know God and fear him. People all over the earth. Interesting. Internationalizing of the reputation of God. Uh, I'm sure you can see the, the kind of gospel relevance of that. In the end, that's what's going to happen. That uh, the gospel is going to go out and men and women are going to come from every nation and come in. And uh, so that's one. So the name of God is known far and wide. And then the other exception is a prayer for help in battle, that God would maintain the cause of His people. And um, now, apart from those two things, uh, what explains the, uh, you know, the frankly miserable content of the prayer that Solomon prays? Where does he get these ideas from? That fuels his prayers. Did he just make it up out of his head? Was he just like, kind of like a Scotsman? naturally pessimistic? Uh, or Or is there something else going on here? Well, actually, there's something very important going on. And it opens up to us, I think, a very important principle of prayer. Because in this prayer, Solomon is going back to the covenant that God made with Moses. And in that covenant that God made with Moses... Which you can find, you can read about the, the blessings of, for Israel in keeping the covenant and the punishments for not keeping the covenant. And that fuels, those, so the two chapters are Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. These covenant stipulations and warnings. And, uh, and what Solomon is doing, is he is praying according to the covenant that God has already laid down. And he is anticipating that there is going to be failure because of sin. But he is pleading with God that if the people would just turn away from their sin and repent and and ask for forgiveness, then God would hear them and constantly come back and, uh, and bless them. So he's not praying whatever comes into his head. His praying is actually being shaped by God's covenant, God's promises, God's word, and he uses what he knows of God's word to know how to pray. And uh, you know, five times he prays for forgiveness for the the people in this prayer. So it functions as both a prayer and it's also an exhortation to the people to to remind them of their covenant obligations to God. That's often how prayer works, isn't it? it? It not only encourages us to pray, but it also reminds us of great things about God. That's how prayer should work when we pray together. And Solomon takes hold of that covenant promise and he asks God not only to remain faithful, but that he would restore people to faithfulness even when they fall, when they fail. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We often think about the Lord Jesus interceding for his people. We've thought about this this morning. We've thought about it in our midweek meeting looking at Hebrews. The intercessory ministry of Christ. And Jesus Christ is praying this kind of prayer that we see in Solomon for his own people. That they would be sustained, his people would be sustained and helped even when they sin. That's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? That we have such a, a king and a high priest who can pray in this way for us. Well, pressing on. It's, it's interesting that this prayer seems to have uh, completely consumed Solomon. Um, I wonder if you notice a change in Solomon's posture. It doesn't directly address it. It just comments on what his posture was. When he starts the prayer in verse 22, He is standing before the altar and in the presence of the people. And he stretches out his hands to heaven. By the end of the prayer, in verse 54, he rises from his knees. You see that? So verse 54. Now Solomon, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. So something has happened during this prayer. He starts off standing. And as time goes on through the prayer, he gets bowed onto his knees. It's as though he's been totally consumed with the God with whom he is engaging And when he does that, it's like he knows he's in the presence of God. And as he does so, he cannot but be bowed down and brought to his knees before God. Solomon is praying and I think he realizes the, the greatness of God and the enormity of the need of his people. And he is bowed down by that. And he cannot but end up on his knees. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of being gripped by the presence of Almighty God as you're in prayer. And maybe you begin in a kind of casual way. You just sort of bow your head a little bit. Maybe put your hands together and you start praying. And before you know it, you're taken up with the presence of God. And you find yourself on your knees, maybe prostrate on the floor. Because you're in the presence of greatness. This is what happens when God blesses his people. So, remember this the next time you pray. Maybe you might want to think to yourself about your posture before God as you pray. Well, thirdly, let's just get to the last point. Um, The last few verses, 55 to 66, here's Solomon um, consecrating his people uh, to to the Lord. He blesses them. He exhorts them. In verse 57, he says, um, "The uh, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers this is not just a general exhortation to the whole people this is a, an exhortation to each and every individual in the congregation may he incline your hearts plural each of you be, may you be inclined in your heart to God may every single person in the assembly be so inclined and Solomon warns everyone to long for his presence And remember, that's all that matters. We want God's presence. We want God to be amongst us. Um, Everything else can crumble and disappear. But we must have God's presence amongst us. And we must pray for this. And as long as we have that intimate fellowship with God, then we can put up with anything. To have that fellowship with God is so vital. And then again, notice in verse 60, there's this internationalizing of the, the reputation of God, the knowledge of God going out into all the nations. Verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Now that can, there's a connection, I think, between the inclining the people of God inclining their hearts towards God and the reputation of God going out into the world. I don't think you can separate those two things off. That as the people incline their hearts towards God and live in such a way that their hearts are inclined towards God, you will have an impact on the world. God's name will go out into the world. There will be change. People will see. And people will come and worship. That's the marvelous thing. people of God are to be a light to the nations, aren't they? So they receive the light of God and they, they begin to be a light to the nations. That was the intention for Israel. Israel is to be a light to the nations. And it's the same today. You know, a church, a local church in a locality, it can be a, a vibrant, healthy church, inclining their hearts to the Lord, and it goes along with our desire. For the world around us. To come to Jesus Christ. You can't escape it. And, and this connection is made in verse 61. Therefore. Let your hearts therefore. In light of all of this. Be wholly true to the Lord. In light of the internationalizing. Of the reputation of God. Let your heart therefore. Be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking in his statutes. Keeping his commands as at this day. Uh, then the last few verses uh, describes the the amazing celebration that happens and it really is uh, enormous Uh, you just see the number of animals that are sacrificed Uh, tells you something about the number of people that must be involved and um, uh, as we mentioned last time it's probably most likely the feast of booths that's happening at this point in the seventh month and here's an interesting thing, there's, uh, there's a variant reading, I, know, I don't know if you know about variant readings, but sometimes in different manuscripts, in original manuscripts, or in the Septuagint or something, uh, there's a different reading of the, the underlying text. And uh, if, you look, if you have an ESV, you'll see there's a footnote, number one. And it's So the ESV says that after seven day, days, on the eighth day, uh, Solomon sends everybody home. But the footnote says after seven days, and seven days. Another seven days. Fourteen days, just to make it clear. Fourteen days. So it's quite possible that what we're looking at here is a, a seven-day festival extended for another seven days. This is kind of like reviving power. God coming and reviving power, and seven more days of celebration going on. And eventually, Solomon says, well, you just need to go home now. <laughs> um everybody's getting a bit tired I suppose and they've got work to do but here's this amazing celebration going on and it's such a joy to the people now that would be a good place to stop a sermon wouldn't it? what an encouragement eh? Uh, the encouragement, the presence of God amongst God's people and um, it's like a a meal laid out for us and we've just been chomping away at it and uh, we can feast our souls upon what we've seen Uh, here's the thing I just, I want to leave you with some. There are some meals where the food tastes great, but every so often you have to pick out a bone. Yeah, you ever had fish like that? You, you think, "Oh, it's great," and you start eating it, and then you get a mouthful of fish bones, <laughs> and that kind of spoils it a little bit. Well, in this story, there's a bit of a fishbone incident that happens, and um, it's kind of annoying fishbone but it actually grows into something huge by the end of the story of Solomon. Um, What do I mean by this fishbone? Well, look look at verses 20 and 21. And you'll see what Solomon says here. Now, the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. And then he says, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house of my name, for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers um, when he brought them out from the land of Egypt. Now, what do you notice about that? There's a lot of I in that, that account, isn't there? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He doesn't give it you know, absolutely to, to God, the glory. He says, I did all this. I did this, I did this and that and that. And uh, we thank you for your promise, but I've done all this. And it sticks in the craw just a little bit. um, Because we know that God has done all this. And Solomon is claiming something for himself in this story. And I think it shows us something that we, we need to pay attention to. Uh, Because the thing about Solomon is for all that he's able to give glory to God and lead in this great God-honoring prayer that he does, nonetheless, he cannot quite remove himself from the center of what has been achieved. Solomon may well have been praying with a heart full of the Spirit of God at this moment. But nevertheless, there's a hint that self is still very much present in the life of Solomon. And so when he prays for God's help, verse 25, Therefore, O Lord God, keep, keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne, if only your, your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Um, you begin to wonder, did he really mean that prayer? Or verse uh, 58, you know, he wants the people's. Uh, let me just find it. In verse 58, he uh, exhorts the people, he says, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and the statutes which he commanded our fathers. He's, he's urging this kind of heart response uh, to, to God. But is that really true of Solomon? Or verse 61, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Is, is that true of Solomon? It's, it's an interesting question. Because there's a, there's a hint here that not all is what it seems with Solomon. That And actually, if you look at the end of his life, it's a bit of a disaster. Because... By the end of by by chapter eleven, he has hundreds of wives who are pagans, and they have inclined his heart to their gods. So all these great prayers about God, you know, incline our hearts to you, but in the end, his heart is inclined to the false gods. You know, there's a a warning there. I think that uh, appearances are not necessarily all they seem and uh, that's not so that we can be suspicious about each other but it's so that we can be suspicious about ourselves as we come before God because there are going to be things in your heart even right now that you don't want anybody to know and you are doing the right thing you're, you're appearing to be godly and you know in your heart that there are sins that you're not dealing with And here's the problem. You know, if you don't deal with sins in your life, the sins will deal with you, just like Solomon. Sins will get you, they'll trip you up. And that's the warning for us. And, you know, you need to especially pray for your minister and elders because they're most susceptible to that kind of sin of appearing to be one thing and actually in their heart of hearts being another. This is a very challenging passage to think about you know I'm getting to the age where I'm beginning to think about these things and I do but I do wonder about Christians who are approaching retirement or in retirement and um, you know I'm only a few years off that official date but you know reti- retirement can be a time when those secret sins of the heart are let loose in your life. You may be able to hide them through your working life. But then when you come to a time you think, well, why do I have to care too much? And your sins became become are let loose. And your life becomes like an uncared for garden full of weeds like ours. <laughs> full of weeds everywhere, brambles everywhere. Horrible in many ways. And the warning from Romans eight thirteen If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have the Holy Spirit, but we now need to put to death the sins of the heart. We have that power. We have that grace. We have greater grace than even Solomon had. Pentecost has happened. We have that greater grace. So please, seek God incline let may God incline all our hearts to him and sustain us and keep us let's pray to God, Father. we do thank you for your blessing um, the way you bless your people through the centuries through you the way you um, you fulfill with your hands what you promise with your mouth and we know that that's still true pray you'd help us to, to learn that and I pray Lord God you'd help us. With these fishbones of our lives, uh, the the ways in which our hearts often seek after um, other things other than your glory. We pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to learn the lessons of Solomon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.